uh, how the church has changed since COVID or through COVID. And a lot of people thought there'd be radical change in the church as we emerged from COVID. And that's actually not been the case. But there's at least three things, I think, uh, that have changed quite distinctly in the church. Uh, and this is not just our church, but this is all churches. One is churches now start on time. We could never do that in the past. But thanks to those that are online, right, we're starting on time now. So uh, that's been a big change. Uh, the second thing is that we don't take up the offering anymore. A lot of you have even forgotten what it was like when they used to pass the plates, right? That was only a little while ago now, but now all, just about all our giving is online. So that's a huge radical change for the church. And the third thing is that sermons are shorter now. Unfortunately, I haven't kind of got that bit of the COVID change, so... Uh, I'm sorry about that, but generally sermons are shorter, right? And if you're new to this church, don't judge my preaching, uh, this church by my preaching this morning. I've been thinking about, a bit about tax collectors lately. Uh, not because I'm under the thumb of Centrelink, although I am now as a sort of a semi-retiree, but, but I've been thinking about why did tax collectors play such an important part in the, in the Gospels, in the New Testament? Why, why would... It was sort of a fairly minor profession. And yet I counted through in Matthew, Mark and Luke, I counted through how many times uh, they're either mentioned in stories or in, uh, in what Jesus was doing, but they're mentioned 24 times, uh, tax collectors uh, are mentioned. Uh, so there must be something about tax collectors that made them such a significant part of the, of the Gospels and of Jesus' ministry. So let me tell you a little bit about tax collectors. You may already know this, but this is uh, back in Jesus' time. Uh, the Romans had subjugated uh, Israel and, and forced them, therefore, to pay taxes, as they did everyone else uh, that they were, had control over. But the thing was, the taxes didn't go to sort of services and infrastructure in the country, as our tax taxes generally do. They, taxes went straight back to Rome. Uh, for the Romans, their benefit. <laughs> so you can imagine how popular uh, taxes were and how popular tax collectors were. And, and so the Romans would employ Jewish people, or wherever they were, uh, but in, in Israel it was Jewish people. They'd employ Jewish men to collect the tax uh, and then pass it on to the, on to the Romans. Lots of things were, were taxed. Uh, there was taxes on property, there was taxes on income, there was taxes on trade, there was taxes on travel. And there was real, no real good control of the whole system because the Romans just wanted as much money as they could get and the tax collectors wanted as much money because they would collect the amount of tax that was due and then anything extra they could collect they could keep for themselves. And so the tax collectors tended to be fairly wealthy. Uh, so they collected a lot of tax and... Uh, but there was no supervision, really. The Roman law courts backed the tax collectors. The Roman army was there to enforce all the tax rules. And so there was no real check. The tax collectors could pretty well do whatever they wanted to do. And so therefore they were seen as bad people, as evil enemies, as treacherous traitors. The only thing that the Jews could do about tax collectors who were their own people, was to use their, their systems and their structures to try and um, ostracise the tax collectors. And so, therefore, tax collectors were excommunicated from the synagogue. They, they, they couldn't go to the synagogue, which was their kind of church. And, uh, 
And they were regarded, they, were, they would teach that the tax collectors were, were traitors uh, to their nation, they were disgraces to their family. Um, and so they were seen uh, as, uh, as pariahs, in a sense, on, on Jewish society. And so whatever the Jews could do to get back at the tax collectors, that's what they did, but they still had to pay their taxes. So for the Jews, the tax collectors were viewed as despicable and almost universally hated. Uh, they were the lowest of the low in Jewish society. Uh, if you wanted an equivalent today, it would probably be something like pedophiles, you know, that, that everyone dis- finds them disgusting. Even they have to protect pedophiles in prison be- from the other prisoners. Uh, and so tax collectors sort of fitted that, that boat. When I was uh, teaching maths, uh, we did this thing called a normal curve, which many of you would know about. It's a, it's a d- way natural things are distributed. So, for instance, if you took the heights of men, uh, you've got some guys that are really tall, like Paul down here standing, is sitting in the front, right in front of me, as I'm trying to watch the words. But anyway, that's, there's Paul. You know, so you've got a few that are really, really tall. You've got a lot of people in the middle. Most of us guys would be somewhere in the middle. Like, so the curve goes high in the middle. And then when you get to really short people, it's, it's uh, very small again. And so natural characteristics are distributed on a normal curve. So we took a normal curve and we made it righteous and unrighteous. All right? So good people are right at the top. And bad people are much, much, much sure, oh yeah, right, right at the top. And bad people are right at the bottom. Uh, and if you took a curve like that, then the tax collectors would sit right at the bottom, right? They represented in society the various worst of people, the most vile, the most despicable people that there were uh, in those Jewish society. That was the tax collectors. And that, I think, is why they're mentioned so much in the Bible. It's because they represented something to, in those days. They represented the lowest of the low, the people that were hated and despised, the people that were furthest away from God. That was the tax collectors. So let's have a look at a story that Jesus told about a tax collector. It's in Luke chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles there, it's verses 9 to 14 of Luke 18. It'll also be up there on the screen as well. To some who were confident, this is from verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, (laughs) robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now this is a parable, right? This is a story. It didn't actually happen. It's just a story that Jesus is telling to try and illustrate a truth. Jesus told lots of stories like that. Remember in my preaching class, uh, I had this uh, pastor who said, uh, 
Every time he went to tell a story, give an illustration, an application in his preaching, there was a couple, a husband and wife, that would immediately turn and look out the window. And it was a fairly small church, you know what I mean? So they were making a point, you know, that preaching shouldn't have stories in it. Like, preaching is about the truth. You know, preaching is about theology. Preaching is about understanding God and telling stories about your kids, latest adventure of your kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not real preaching. And, and you could say, well, there's some truth in that, isn't there? Do you know what I mean? Like, we just want the, we just want the content. <laughs> Don't give us these stories. Except that it's just not biblical. Like, the Bible's just full of story. Like, this genre, the story genre, narrative genre is more common in the Bible than any other genre. Most of the Old Testament's narrative. All the Gospels are all narrative. So, so telling stories was very much of what Jesus loved to do. He did it for a whole lot of reasons, but he loved to tell stories. And so this is the story that he told. So there's a tax collector. We know about him. We know what he represents in the story. What about the Pharisee? Well, the Pharisees were on the other end of the normal curve. Well, let me get it right again. They were on this end of the normal curve, right? They were right at the, at the top. They were the good guys. They were the religious guys. They worked so hard to get everything right in their lives. They prayed more than anyone else. They studied the Bible more than anyone else. They obeyed the 600 laws that they had more than anyone else. They weren't all that lovable, because you know, a lot of people that really are strict about keeping doing the right thing aren't always the most loving people. But they were respected. They were respected in the side because people knew that they honestly sought to do what was right. They honestly wanted to obey God. They honestly knew the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, so well. They honestly prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And, and so they were seen as the, as the really good ones. If you want to pick someone right at the other end, tax collectors down this end, and right at the other end were the Pharisees. We don't always see them like that because we live post-Jesus, but that was the way they were regarded uh, in their culture. They were the group that the majority of Jews would put right at the top of the behaviour curve, the righteous curve. You had to respect. You may not like them, but you had to respect their commitment and their effort, their sacrifices that they made. The question is, as we look at this story, is who are these Pharisees today? And I think, I suspect that none of us would identify with the Pharisees, you know, like, well, because Pharisees have got such a bad rap, haven't they? You know, if we use the word, you're a Pharisee, that's not a positive thing. Back in Jesus' day, it was a positive thing, but in our day, it's not. So who are the Pharisees? See, it's useless me preaching this sermon if there's no Pharisees here, right? We might have a few tax collectors here, but there's no, if there's no Pharisees, then, then what's the point of, of preaching about the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector? So let me try and define what I think a Pharisee was. A Pharisee was someone who believed that they're better than other people in a significant way or in significant ways. Those people that see that they're in that top group for some reason, and often the right reason, a good reason, that they're in that top group. So let me try and give some illustrations. I could pick something like morality, right? So some of us see ourselves right in that top group as far as our moral behaviour goes. We are good people. We're doing what's right. Uh, you know, so we see ourselves there. We could uh, pick racism or racial uh, uh, thinking about how we understand race. And some of us, perhaps, hopefully no one here, but some of us may see ourselves as because 
we're Aussies or because we're uh, Euro uh, Europeans from that heritage, you know, that somehow we're superior uh, to other races. I mean, some people are in that. But let me pick some things. These are probably guy things, I think, more. I don't know about women, do you know what I mean? I don't really know very much about women, so you'll have to apply that to yourselves after 40 years of marriage. But um, let me pick some things that kind of expand this idea of Pharisee uh, a little bit more. So let me put some things on that curve, right? The first one uh, is being right or being wrong. Some people are more right than other people are. Uh, they know more about what the Bible says or they know more about world affairs or they've had some special revelation from God that, uh, and, and they know more than other people. And, and so they see themselves not, not in a proud way necessarily but just in a realistic way that I actually know more <laughs> than, than other people. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with knowing more. Maybe it's right, maybe it's not. Do you know what I mean? But there's nothing wrong with knowing more. But some people would be a Pharisee in that sense. Do you know what I mean? In that, that I actually know. I'm probably like that. Do you know what I mean? I probably know more about the Bible than most people here because I've just had the opportunities to study more and, and spend more time there. Do you know what I mean? But, so a Pharisee could be someone who feels that they kind of have more information, that they know more, that they understand more about life, that they have more wisdom or more insights or more revelation, you know. So that could be a Pharisee today. Uh, a second possibility is use a curve for successful on one end and ordinary or unsuccessful uh, on, on the other end. Some people here are more successful uh, than others. That's nothing wrong with being successful. We've, uh, we've accumulated... Uh, more wealth or we've done more uh, in our business or in our workplace, we've achieved certain things, uh, we've got more social standing, we've got more recognition, do you know what I mean? And we realise that, we, we know that uh, we're on that end of the, of the curve, we're, we're, we're more successful than, than, than other people are. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's just true, some people are more successful than others and they could be the Pharisees. Uh, a third possibility, just trying to expand our thinking a little bit, is uh, it's a little bit more difficult to explain, but, but I've, I've put a self-dependent to, to needy. There's so much in our society now, when you read the news and all the rest, you know, people blame everything on other people or particularly on the government. Do you know what I mean? This didn't happen or this didn't happen or the government should have done something or the police should have done something about this. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's a, a, a blame society. We, we're looking for other people to blame. Some of us aren't like that. Do you know what I mean? We've actually self-sufficient. We've done well. Uh, I'm part of a, a group of guys my age or older, Trevor. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we sit around and talk about things and, and most of us have not had a lot to start with. Uh, we did get free uni back in those days, but, but like we haven't had a lot and we've done well and, we've, uh, we've, and we haven't had needed anyone help and we've done well and now, you know, we're supporting our kids or whatever else we're, we're doing now. And it, that could be, the, that could be uh, the Pharisees, you know, those that clearly have been self-sufficient. They've, they've achieved things. They've done things by themselves. They haven't needed uh, other people to help them very much. So uh, that's the way I see Pharisees, right? So if that is you, <laughs> we think that in some ways, and right ways, right? I'm not knocking it. Pharisees were better people in a sense, you know? So in some ways we feel that we've done a bit better than, 
than other people have, you know. We're, we're kind of, in, in some area, we're, we're kind of at the top. And there's, you know, there's looks and all the other stuff as well that you could put in there uh, as well. So in Jesus' story, there's two guys from the opposite ends of the righteous-unrighteous continuum. They turn up to pray privately in the temple. The good guy and the bad guy. <laughs> the Pharisee and the tax collector. The pastor and the pedophile. And they're both there talking to God from both ends of the normal curve. All right, so let's have a look at what happens. The Pharisee stands up. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. Now, standing up was not a show of pride, you know. It was just a normal posture for prayer. A guy would stand up and pray, hands raised, head up, <laughs> and would, would pray. And so this Pharisee was just praying the way that he would normally pray. And he starts, God, I thank you. And it sounds like it's going to be a, a, a praise point. Do you know what I mean? God, I thank you. This is the way many of their prayers or their praise started. God, I thank you for what you've done, or I thank you for things that have happened in my life. I praise you, God. Uh, you read the Psalms, it's full of that, all right? So here he is standing up, God, I thank you. In this case, he thanks God that he's high up on the religious continuum. Do you know what I mean? That he's right up there with the righteous. <laughs> I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. <laughs> Robbers. Because notice the people he picks, you know, not the best in society. But anyway, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like lowest of the low. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like that. And that was true. He wasn't like that. He'd done a lot of stuff to try and please God and serve God and do what God asked him to do. He fasted twice a week. That's what he goes on to say. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He fasts twice a week. If you fast regularly, you'll know fasting is pretty tough. It's a challenge to fast. and He does it on Mondays and Thursdays probably. Do you know what I mean? Like twice a week, he fasts. Uh, he gives a tenth of all his income. Everything he gets in, he carefully counts it out and gives a tenth of it to uh, uh, to the temple, to God. So he makes sacrifices with his money and with his stomach. May I just point out they're big things for guys at least, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? Making sacrifices with your stomach and your money are really big things. And this guy's got it down. He points out that God must be pleased with him. Like, like look at what he does. Surely God is thankful uh, for that. But uh, this is not a praise psalm at all. He's not praising God for what God's done. He's praising himself for the effort that he's made. Look at the number of times he says, I hear. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week and give all of, all, a tenth of all I get. It's, it's all about him. <laughs> it's all about the stuff that he's done. What he prays may be true. But he doesn't really understand God at all. He might appear godly, but his prayer is about him and his achievements rather than God and his grace. There's a subtle, really subtle danger in this, you know, that 
it's so easy for our thankfulness to, to move to the pride, do you know what I mean? To think that, well, we're doing a bit better than other people are, are doing. There's a well-known joke about this, uh, uh, this story. A Sunday school teacher was teaching this story, do you know what I mean? About uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector and tells the story to the kids and, and then finishes the story and says, now kids... Let's thank God that we're not like that tax collector, not like that Pharisee. <laughs> you get the irony, irony there. <laughs> it's so easy uh, for us to feel that there's something about us that must make us a bit better, or we're, we're going a bit further than other people. We're making sacrifices, we're giving, we're, whatever it might be. We're, we're laying down our life in other ways, and that's wonderful and that's good. But it so easily slips over, just thinking that there must be something about us that's better. Maybe some of you are thinking right now, you think, this is a really good message for someone I know, you know. Like <laughs> the approach of the tax collector is completely different. He's a broken man. He, he realises his place on the normal curves. He didn't know about normal curves, but he recognises his place. He's right at the bottom. He's a, just a terrible person. Uh, he really is. It's, it's easy for us, because Jesus mentioned so, tax collectors so much and spent so much time with them, it's easy for us to think that maybe they're the heroes in the story. Maybe the tax collectors are actually the really good people. That's not true. Jesus made some disparaging comments about tax collectors. They weren't good people. They were rotten people. They really were. In Matthew 5, 46, he says... He's talking about the need for us to love our enemies. And he says, uh, you know, it's easy to love people who love you. I mean, that's, anyone does that. Look, even the tax collectors do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, even the bottom people, they'll like people who like them. <laughs> and, uh, and then in Matthew 18, he's talking about how you deal with sin within the church, within God's people. And he said, if they keep on sinning, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. So it's not that Jesus said, oh, the tax collectors are just wonderful people, really. If you really knew their hearts, you'd see how, what good people they were. They weren't at all. They were rotten people. Their actions were despicable. And this tax collector had realised this. And his response was, but the tax collector, verse 13, stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was in agony because he knew he was approaching God, you know, the perfect God, and he knew that his actions were just so terrible and, and uh, so evil and so motivated by wrong. He lived all his life trying to, to make money, you know, and he knew that it was just so horrific, the things that he'd done, and the th attitudes that he'd had. And he knew that there was... There was no way he could make up any of this. And uh, so here he is. He stands at the back and he, he's just broken. Uh, he's saying um, he wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast as a sign of deep grief and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, he realised what he'd done wrong and his the emotion was welling up and it was just overwhelming him, you know the grief that he had over his, his past. I remember uh, in this church, 
wasn't quite the way it is now, but in this church many years ago, uh, a guy called Jim who had come to church for many years with his wife who was a Christian and he wasn't a believer and, uh, but to please her he'd come along to church but he was a Scottish guy <laughs> and uh, he was strong and he was proud and, uh, and he, he just wouldn't buy into it. Do you know what I mean? He saw what God was doing around the place and uh, he just... Uh, he stayed true to what he believed and what he thought. And, and then one Sunday morning, uh, as I was preaching, God got hold of Jim. And he came to my office afterwards and, uh, with his wife and said, I want to talk to you. And, and as he started to talk, he started to, he started to wail, really. That's the best I can describe. Just cry and cry. And like this is a old proud Scottish man never showed his emotions in his life and he was just wailing away because suddenly he realized his hard heart towards God and his brokenness of his life and uh, his wife was both completely surprised <laughs> and tremendously joyful because she'd never seen him like this before God touched his life and that's what happened is happening in this story that Jesus is telling. All the tax collector can do is ask for mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The word mercy there in the Greek actually translate, often used to translate an Old Testament word, which is cover. So what he's really asking is, is God, cover up. Like, when I look at what I've done and where I've been, Lord, can you just cover that up? Have mercy on me. Set me free from all the things that I've done wrong. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows he doesn't deserve anything. He's just asking, maybe God, maybe you could have mercy on me. And of course, God answers his prayer. And this is Jesus' story, right? So this is Jesus. This is God himself is saying this. This is what God does in that sort of situation. I tell you, Jesus said, verse 14, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He humbled himself before God. He recognised his brokenness. He just said, he wasn't looking at other people around the place and where they were at. He was just looking at himself and saying, God, I am just not good enough and I am really sorry about that. And Jesus said, he humbled himself and he went home justified. He was exalted. He was put right with God. While the Pharisee, for all his goodness and all his being right up the, right, the righteous end of the curve, went home a million miles away from God. Not understanding God, not knowing God and not being accepted by God. Not at all. And uh, the Pharisee, in the story that Jesus told, would end up being humbled by God in the end. Jesus said... For all those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. When they stand before God, they'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves, they're going to be exalted. <laughs> Jesus is making the point that uh, it's all about humility. Humility towards God, humility towards uh, others as well. For either you have confidence in yourself and think that somehow, you're on that kind of the, that half of the curve at least and you're doing okay and you're, you're at least better than a whole lot of other people. Either you have confidence in yourself and 
think that you're better and you get humbled by God, or you realize that it doesn't matter where other people are at, what is God's interested in is you. And it's not that you're better, and it's not that uh, you've got a whole lot of good things. That might be very helpful, but it's not what God's concerned about. God's concerned about your brokenness and your humility and your desire for him. The thing is, there's two options here, isn't there? We humble ourselves and get exalted. We exalt ourselves and get humbled. And the choice is yours. The choice is mine. Like, whether you get humbled, <laughs> whether you exalt yourself and get humbled, or whether you humble yourself and get exalted, that's a choice that we make. That's a choice that you have to make. <laughs> Which one is it going to be? I must admit, I struggle humbling myself. I really do. Recently, um, I was up the coast at, our, at, at Caloundra in our house there and our unit there and I was repairing a photo frame. May I point out it was Deb's photo frame that I was repairing with super glue, right? Now, I don't know if you use super glue much. I hate super glue, right? Like it gets, sticks my fingers together. It gets over everything. They say, this is non-stick. It won't run, but it always does run, you know. And I was repairing this photo frame for Debbie and it, the glue ran and it ran onto her Caesar stone bench in the kitchen. I did have some stuff there, but somehow I got through that as well. So. Now, you've got to know that Deb's bench is her pride and joy. After me, of course. But after that, <laughs> she loves her bench, right? And keeping it clean is really, really important. And so now I had glue on the bench. Deb was in Brisbane for the day, so I had a day to fix this. So I tried everything, right? I did. I tried everything. I didn't want to destroy the bench, so I had to be a bit careful. But I, nothing would move. This scoop super glue, the little the thing was still, the little pile of super glue was still there. And I thought, I'm not going to tell Deb about this. <laughs> like, like, it wasn't all that obvious first look, do you know what I mean? I thought, she won't find it out for a couple of days, and uh, then I can just say, oh, I don't know anything about it. You know, so I... I <laughs> I honestly did that. Like, I hate being shamed. And God convicted me uh, during the day as I scrubbed and scrubbed and tried everything that, uh, that uh, I had to tell Deb, you know. So, so when Deb came, uh, I said, sorry, darling, I've wrecked your bench, you know. And uh, can I say that it was the most, one of the most difficult things I've done and one of the most freeing things that I've done? <laughs> That's what humility does, you know. Especially when she said, oh, I can't even see it. <laughs> what was I worried about all day? <laughs> but I find, I find humbling myself very difficult, and many of us do the same. We see ourselves, we like to think of ourselves, we're kind of working hard at it, and we're trying, we're, we know we're not perfect, we're not right up there with the Pharisees maybe, but like we're, we're on that side somewhere, we're... We're doing okay. We're better than others. And, uh, and so we try to justify ourselves. And, and, and Jesus said, you keep doing that. And in the end, I'm going to humble you. But you humble yourself. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to be exalted. Our righteousness may be better than others. But let me show you what the curve is really like. That's it. So what if you're a little bit better than someone else? Look how far short we are of God. That's what it really looks like. 
So no wonder God says, well, well I'm, you're doing okay. You know, we say, well, I'm doing okay and I'm trying this and I'm a little bit and I'm praying or whatever. And God says, that's great, appreciate that, love that. But hey, don't think that gets you anywhere near me. <laughs> like God is perfect, he's pure, he's right, he's good. He's loving, he's all of those things. And whatever we're doing, and it's, what's the use of looking at someone else and saying I'm better than them? Like, so what? <laughs> what we've got to look at is, is God. And when we look at God, we get humbled. Many of us are doing this, may I say. Many of you I know, you come this morning and, uh, and it's not to prove yourself or to do things that will make you feel good. Do you know what I mean? It's, you're humble and you're just saying, God, I just need you desperately. You know that. I know that I haven't got it. I know I've messed up this week. And, uh, but Lord, I just, I just want you and I need you. And uh, Some of you actually are even further down the track than that. And some of you feel that you'll never actually be good enough. Do you know what I mean? The problem for you is not the problem we're talking about here. It's the problem's the opposite. Like You're with the, with the um, tax collectors and I just feel rotten and... I look at the other people around the place and they seem so nice and so good and I'm falling so far short of that. And, and this story says, that's a good way to start. Like, that's great. If that's the way you're feeling about yourself, you're ready for the mercy of God. The trouble is you've got to receive it. You've got to let God cover it up <laughs> and move on because he'll, he'll exalt you. He'll exalt you this morning. He'll say that you're my child, you're precious and special to me. You're forgiven and you're whole and you're healed. He'll say that to you this morning. You've got to listen. If you're down that other end and you're feeling hopeless and useless and you'll never amount to anything, then you need to listen to God. That tax collector, with all the rottenness of his life, went home justified, <laughs> right with God, exalted by God. And I know many of you doing this. But it's so easy for us to slip over and think that there's something significant and important. In some ways, we're better than others. And when we do that, we get into big trouble. Could this story have ended? I'm right at the end, right? Could this story have ended differently? Um, could, was the Pharisee doomed, <laughs> in other words, to, to be the, you know, the, the bad guy in the story? Was he doomed because of his goodness? And uh, let me tell you how the story could have finished uh, with an up-to-date illustration. The team can probably come back up now. That would be good. Uh, there's a guy called John Mark Comer. Some of you would be, know his name. He's written a lot on Christian spirituality. He's a young guy, well, young compared to me, like in early 40s, I think, something like that. And, uh, and, and he's written on spirituality and on time with God and resting in God and keeping Sabbath and having a rule of life that, so you live God's way. Do you know what I mean? He's written on all this sort of thing. World reputation, very well read, uh, very, very capable, able guy and very good guy, very spiritual guy. Uh, he's a, a Pharisee, do you know what I mean? In the best sense of the terms. Do you know what I mean? Here is a guy that really is seeking to live God's way. He also planted a church called, uh, uh, in Portland called Bridgetown, something like that, and uh, and he grew this church to a you know, very significant size. And then he felt very much that God would have him step back, that it wasn't his best gifting using, leading this uh, church. And so he stepped back and brought another guy in from outside who, who became the senior pastor of the church. But, but John Mark stayed in the church for a period of time. 
And I heard the, the guy that took over. So here's a younger, even younger than him, like in his 30s, this guy, and took over. And you got the senior pastor that had built the place, that had planted the place, sitting in the church, right, uh, every Sunday. And he's preached, this new guy, young guy's preaching and all the rest. And uh, someone asked him, what was the transition like? Like, what was it like having John Mark, who's got this huge worldwide reputation, sitting in the church? And, and he said, it was fantastic. And, he, and the interviewer said, why, why, was the, why was the transition so good? And he said, well, let me give you an example. Every Sunday I'd preach. And then we'd have a response time. People would come forward for a response and get prayed for by the prayer team. He said, John Mark was the first one forward every Sunday. Here's this guy that's got his life together, that's the spiritual guru. And here he is, first one coming and humbling himself and getting prayer. <laughs> That's how the story could have ended for the Pharisee. <laughs> it's never too late for any of us. Like, it's never too late. All we need to do is humble ourselves, recognize who we are and where we're at in our relationship with God, and cry out to Him for mercy, and we get covered. <laughs> we are treated with huge mercy through Jesus. And we get exalted. That's the freedom that comes through humbling ourselves. We're going to sing a song uh, now, and uh, as we, we're going to stand up to, to sing it. And I'm just going to give some opportunity this morning that if you would like to physically respond in some way, you don't have to do this right. Lots of other ways you can do it, but but if you would like to physically respond uh, in that, some way this morning, just to say, God, I'm not worried about. Who else is here this morning? I'm worried about you and my relationship with you. And I just want to humble myself before you and say, God, I am desperate. Please cover my sin and, and exalt, Lord, exalt me today in your graciousness and in your mercy and in your love. I'm just here. I just want you. And if you'd like to say that physically in some way, what I'd like you to do is just to sit down, or you could kneel. Kneel's probably too difficult for most of us, but you could kneel, or you could even come to the front if you wanted to, if you really wanted to. But, but just sometime while we're singing this song, if you would like to in some way, just to say, yeah, this is me. I just want to respond to this. I just need you, Jesus. Uh, not worried about what other people think or what other, where other people are at. Then just sit down. You might be for like 10 seconds. Just pray that prayer. It might be for a minute, whatever, whatever you choose. But just sit down or kneel down uh, just for a period of time during that song. Uh, it's just a response to God. Now, you don't have to do that right. You can be humble and stand up the whole way through or sit down the whole way through, right? That doesn't matter. It's what's happening in your heart. But it's just a chance to physically respond. And you at home, I'd do the same thing, right? If you're watching online, then this is your opportunity. This is for you too. You have an opportunity. Perhaps you can kneel. It's probably easier at home than it is in church. Kneel down and just say, God, I'm the tax collector this morning. <laughs> I know my brokenness. I need you desperately. Cover me. Cover me. Pour out your mercy on me, dear Jesus.